the word to teach means to flirt or to tease. Kind of, they're related. Welcome to Deep Thoughts on the Rocks, a conversation to uncover truth regarding language, philosophy, and theology. Oh, that looks a lot more like a recording. Cool. So, Mike, you said that the best banner happens when we're not re- when you don't know that it's being recorded. Yep. Yeah, we uh, we messed that up. I know it's hard for me <laughs> to be subtle when I have a giant TV that shows what I'm doing. That's true. It is easier. It is easier when your computer is not like facing the other people who are also on the podcast. Yeah. And yeah. Sixty inches diagonal. Fifty-five, actually, oh, but close, close enough. Yeah. Wow. So, did you want to hear? um, (laughs) Oh, this is this is good content. Did you want to hear a bit about my sunburn yesterday? I do actually want to hear a little bit about your sunburn. It's fantastic. Thank you. The the flip flop made a nice little indeed. Yeah, classic. Um, so I'm sitting on a beach, catching up with an old friend, and we start talking about moral relativism. Uh, They went. They go to a college and. Um, Polly Cal, I think, and uh, just philosophy t- professor taught them about relativism, but they used interesting language. So we were trying to get through defining terms and figuring out what, what do we actually think instead of, you know, so it took, it took four hours and uh, we were trying to stay in the shade, but the shade kept moving with the sun and the trees. And so, yeah, nice. we just kept chasing it and I got a nasty burn. Um, those words, I'll, I'll just say quickly, those words that were used that I hadn't heard before is they talk about beliefs Okay. Instead of saying my truth and your truth, they'll say it's my belief and your belief. Sure. That's actually, I mean, that's at least more meaningful. Yes. Um, and then the other word was, uh, oh, let me think about it. Understanding. Okay. You can come to an understanding of something, but you can't know truth. You can only come to an understanding uh, okay. That was one that's we had where to... I would disagree. So they're saying absolute truth exists, yep. but we cannot know it in its fullness. And I had to think about that a, a while. But could you come to true knowledge of it in part? In part, yes. Oh, okay. Eventually, yeah, we got would, to that point, and I, I felt good with that. with that. That was at that was at the last at the end of the <laughs> the end of the conversation. Four hours later, and I was like, okay. We made progress, I think. At least we both have a better understanding of what each other think on, on the issue. Sure, so. yeah. Well, and at least that's tenable, the idea that you can't ever fully comprehend something. The, pro- the, the big question for me comes in is the idea of can you have any true knowledge of anything, in, even in part, versus the idea that you can never actually have any true knowledge. You can only have a belief. They're saying you cannot prove anything. I only disagree with mathematics. You can only prove mathematics. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. That's the that's the one that's a Yep. You certain... can only prove effectively anything something that is a closed system that exists entirely beneath the mind. Which means mathematics is the only thing that fits that. It's the only thing oh, that is okay. beneath our minds and is a closed system. So like rocks are beneath our minds, but they're not a closed system. Rocks can you could still theoretically have more rocks Hmm. but mathematics is done we can learn more and more about it but you can't mathematics cannot change yeah period only our only our understanding of it can change but it's set rocks change rocks and therefore they're not a closed system (laughs) so interesting yeah so like if we were talking about 
rape is wrong. That's a universal. Everyone knows it's wrong. That is a truth. And they say, well, but some people in some cultures would not define something as rape, even though we would. So, so is it really? Can we really know that rape is wrong? And it, it would have been easier just to say, okay, math. Go to the math example of two plus two equals four. Mm-hmm. If someone says it equals five, and you then then a relativist, a true relativist response would be. Well, some people think it's five, some people think it's four, so we can't really know. That would be a relativist position, not necessarily the only relativist position, but it is a relativist position. That's one specific kind of relativism, which is the idea that all truth is relative, Mm -hmm. which is not necessarily all relativism. Okay. You can be a relativist in areas. Um, Not, yeah. Okay. It's interesting. So Aquinas is a relativist in some ways. Um, in morality, when he gets to morality, he does define that certain actions can be good or bad relative to circumstances. Yes. So he does relate things. Or intent. Which is subjectivism. So Aquinas is um, object, intention, circumstance. Mm -hmm. That's the objective, subjective, and relative view. Oh, cool. All three have to be non-evil for the act to be non-evil. So neutral or good. Yep. Yes. And that's the object where, is the part that people miss the most, I think. Object is the one that is argued the most. Yeah. Because it's that's the idea that regardless of perspective, a certain thing can always be wrong forever. That's yeah. the one that people um, object to most of the time. But I think it's important to... And this is something that um, I was just listening to Peter Kraft explain it. And it just it kind of opened my eyes to... Because like object, intention, circumstance... To me, when I was taught it in high school, I liked it. I subscribed to it. But I I would say I didn't know if I would not have been able to, like, tell someone why I thought that was good. Or even understand why it's important that every action can be understood in those three terms until, like, a month ago. (laughs) When someone said... Well, there are three ways to view reality. Objective, su- subjective, and relative. And Aquinas' morality is covers all three. He wow. says, it doesn't matter how you look at the act. The act must not be evil in every way that you could possibly look at it for it to not be evil. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that actually now suddenly that took the theory into practice. And I was suddenly able to really like... I could approach the theory much more easily. Incredible. I think Peter Kraft is incredible every mm-hmm. time he talks about Aquinas. But I think, though, when he specifically talked about here's how Aquinas views law and morality, I thought it was one of the most eye-opening things I had ever heard. Is that a video? It was an audiobook called okay. The Philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas by I, Peter Kraft. I would love to listen to that. It's phenomenal. I am going to re-listen to it again um, for... Um, when I go to, so in my intro to philosophy course this fall, when I'm teaching the morality section, I'm going to re, I'm going to re-listen to Peter Kraft while I'm building that unit big oh, time, because I thought he does such a good job of one of the problems with intro to philosophy is you have to try and cover everything correctly without actually covering anything well, <laughs> because you don't have time. One semester is not enough time to actually know much of anything. Um, my intro to philosophy class's point is by the end of the semester, I want students to be inspired 
to continue to seek truth. But I want to give them a good foundation. Ways that here, here are ways to test whether or not your conclusions are aligning with truth or not. And so I want to give them a taste of here's what metaphysics is like. Here's what morality is like. Here's what ethics is like. Here's what art is like. And give them solid foundations, ways of thinking about things that can lead them as they continue. My ultimate goal is to teach more than just intro, to teach all kinds of philosophy courses. Um, one of the other things I want to give them is a ref, as a resources sheet. Just be like, if you're interested in this, here's some really good stuff. If you're interested in this, here's some good stuff. There are bad authors on every topic. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget whose law it is. Um, 90% of everything is crap. <laughs> it's one of my favorite quotes of all time. Um, I forget who came up with that. I need to remember. It's such and such person's law is what it's sort of jokingly called. Um, but unfortunately... The two best authors in philosophy are hard to read, especially for high schoolers who haven't been taught a lot of philosophy. Plato and Aquinas are so hard to read (laughs) if you don't know how they're talking. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. There aren't that many terms you need to um, uh, learn for Aquinas to, to make sense of his stuff i would right? argue aquinas has more terms than plato oh, okay partly because plato goes about defining terms that's uh, a lot of what he does aquinas works with terms yeah and he you can read aquinas and get a gist of what he's saying but you will miss the important distinctions if you don't know what he means specifically by certain words so if you read through his description of the soul and you don't know what he means by phantasm. Mm-hmm. You'll get a gist of what he means by soul. You won't be able to answer the question of how does the intellectual non-corporeal soul interact with the brain? You will not be able to answer that question with any sort of confidence unless you understand phantasm in a way that the English word phantasm 100% never means mm-hmm. <laughs> in modern yeah. parlance. So, yeah, I would say with, with Aquinas, there's a reason that you can buy a, an Aquinas dictionary. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> Which know Which is this okay. thick. It's okay, like an inch well. thick, and it's all the words. And it's because even words, most of it's not even words that he made a specific meaning for. It's just, he lived 800 years ago. No one talks like he does anymore. Even yep. philosophers don't talk like he does anymore. It's been 800 years. Um, the only philosophers that would remotely be talking like him are Thomists. And even then, Thomism didn't, start, didn't stop with Thomas. Thomism has progressed for 800 years. Thomists think very it, differently than Aquinas on several issues and in several ways. Well, they, and they, Yeah, they'd have to with the... They'd have yeah. to with certain things that he just was objectively wrong about. And we can go back and we can say that, um, you know, for various reasons, he's wrong about several things. And I don't want to just start spewing. Here's the ways Aquinas is wrong. <laughs> That's not this episode. You know what I but, noticed? We're really bad at banter. We pretty much just went into a side topic of uh, that was mostly my fault. <laughs> That's true. We were just talking about your uh, sunburn. <laughs> your sunburn. So the 90% is crap thing came to mind uh, for me when I was looking up. Um, remedies 
for sunburns. <laughs> yes. Oh my. A gosh. lot of them scared me. Uh, I'll yes. be honest. So I'm at my grandparents after I um, right after I got the burn, and no aloe vera. So that they said, well, we have some calamine lotion or something that'll help uh, soothe the pain. And um, I, I'm not. I don't care too much about the pain, but they insisted, so I, um, you know, I went through with it. Turns out that bottle though was so old that <laughs> the gel or the lotion in it was sticky. Yeah. The the oh kind of gosh. sticky that like. You can't get off. So I come home and it's just caked onto my arms. Not dry though, not like hardened mm-hmm. caked, but like sticky caked into oh, my hair and no. my arms and my legs and yeah. And so I I was like trying to wash it off with soap and soap would not cut through the sticky. It's oh just there. Gosh. So I'm having to like be rough with this tender sunburn. And then I was just like, what gets rid of sticky lotion? One random Google search on my phone. <laughs> Apparently isopropyl alcohol was kind of doing that, but that is not very kind to your skin no. either. Oh my gosh, no. So that made it a little worse, probably. Yeah. And then the weird one that I found that was suggested by some registered nurse, you know, uh, <laughs> perfect <laughs> medical uh, official opinion, uh, was soaking sunburns in black tea. They I've said, heard of that. They said the tannins will correct the ph imbalance that is present on your skin when you get burned i didn't know ph was a deal with sunburns but i mean it's i wouldn't be the only thing i do oh right right certainly i'm skeptical of anything that that relegates all health to a ph scale Uh, not Uh, that that's what they were claiming but i know that there are health philosophies that are basically just like you need to make your body as basic as possible Okay. Which is hilarious because blood is naturally <laughs> acidic. acidic. <laughs> and if you make your blood naturally basic, you will die. Well, there you go. So it also turns out, um, so usually it's eat certain foods that make you more alkaline than acidic. The problem is your diet can only affect your body's overall uh, pH by like 0.2. Whoa. Max. Max. And that's like, not you, but like maximum <laughs> 0.2. And that's a crazy amount of eating, like, baking soda or something. Like, Uh, it has to be you are eating super basic things. So, like, bathing in a lemon juice bath would change your pH? No, not very much because that's all outside of you. Oh, that's true. But drinking only lemon juice for a day might make you, like, 0.1 or 0.2 more acidic. Wow. Your body's just really good at not getting screwed up. In acidity. <laughs> um, turns out your body's really good at not being as stupid as you are with your health. Yeah. Like, that's a great moment. <laughs> yeah. So, after reading all of these various things that I could have tried, I actually tested the tea thing, but not well enough. I bet you're supposed to soak for like 30 minutes. And I just, I put a little tea on a spot to just be the scientific method of like, I'll just see in the morning if it's any better there or not. Oh, sure. <laughs> no change. No. <laughs> if, if you, if listener land was on the edge of their seats on that one. Yeah. Uh, but no, I just, I, I did kind of conclude, you know what? My body is just going to take care of this on its own and I'll just kind of put up with it in the meantime. Yeah. The best thing to do, uh, is to keep it from drying out. That's like your number one. I heard yeah. your body heals in a, in a wet environment. Water first. is life. Yeah. That's what, um, that's why mm. that's like the main reason for, um, band-aids. It's, I mean, other than it holds there's a little bit of pressure. But neosporin is antibacterial, but it's also wet. It's and so gel, you put yeah, neosporin yeah. on it and hold it there and it keeps it moist. Okay. And your body can heal. That's why um, if you keep a wound, if you let a wound scab over, you will probably get a scar if it's big enough. 
because a scab keeps moisture in, but it also, everywhere the scab is touching is dry. And so that part heals worse. Whereas if you keep Neosporin on it, it actually will stop a scab from, from forming, but it also keeps it moist and you will much, much less likely to scar over if you keep it wet. Wow. Well, if we haven't turned the stomachs of the audience yet, do we want to get into the topic? Sure. We kind of uh, approached the topic a little bit um, when right, you were talking. Right up to the edge. Um, yeah. Uh, I can't remember what you were talking Oh, you were talking about terms and stuff like that and what belief means. And I mentioned something like phantasm. And the way Aquinas uses the word phantasm is nothing like the common English use of phantasm. And what I wanted to talk about today was the relationship between language and thought. Um, and just sort of explore that a little bit. And I wrote it down as a series of questions that I'm going to pose to you and see what you think. And you you were glancing at, we didn't mention yet, but Joey is not here today. In his place, we have Max. Hello. Oh, that was really... Oh, get, no, get right up on the mic. Right, right up on the oh, mic? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like right up here. Don't like, be shy. You can hear the difference <laughs> between how loud you are and how loud I am. Yeah, that's that's very true. Yes. But I tend to be super loud. Um, also true. I, <laughs> thank you. Uh, here's... What, um, I mean, the first question is just, what is the relationship between language and thought? If someone asked you this wildly philosophical question on the street, they just run up to you, stay six feet away, and then shake you proverbially and say, what is the relationship between language and thought? What would you say? So I have to have like a knee-jerk response? Sure. The difference between language and thought. The relationship the between relationship language between language and thought. Which you can define as a difference, but I just want... Uh-huh. My question is relationship. You can say they have no relationship, they're utterly different, that's totally fine. Knee-jerk, I'm going to go with that. Okay, that language and thought have no relationship. They are fundamentally different. Yes. And fundamentally separate. Yes. Okay. If, but we need to define what language is, obviously, and thought and yeah i mean sure yes we can get to that what's your knee-jerk reaction well i'd say if you don't have the language to describe your thought then you don't really have thought then really like if you're trying to explain everything to someone and you can't then i guess something along that lines okay so you're um correct me if i'm putting words in your mouth but you're saying something along the lines of to consider something to be a fully formed thought requires the ability to express it to that's, another. That's good language. I, I guess, was thinking of communicate, but yeah, I like express. I guess to a degree, yeah. Okay, okay. Cool. You both have different opinions than I do, which is good on the influence between language and thought. On the, the variety show of Deep Thoughts on the Rock. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I'm interested first in yours, where you said they have no relationship. Um, can you talk more about that just a little bit? Yes. Um, oh boy. Well, I was only going off of, again, it was a knee jerk. So sure. I was no, going no, off no. of something 100%. that recently happened, um, which was that I tried to start, I'm learning a new language, Italian, mm-hmm. and I'm, I tried thinking in Italian because, uh, one of my language coaches, uh, advised me to do that. Yes. And so I tried it and it worked pretty well and it was still my thoughts. And sure. so I thought, wow, my thoughts are not tied to and, or dependent on a language. Mm-hmm. And in, in a way, I feel like the new language I'm learning, I'm just learning a lot more vocab, a little bit of sy- syntax change, 
of how mm-hmm. the, the grammar, how the language works and the ordering of things and thoughts in a sentence. Mm-hmm. So I guess language could maybe order the way you think, right? Without, this is your opinion. That's what I'm, I'm not going to correct kind of, you on right, your opinion. I think I'm just kind of concluding right now is that language could maybe um, order the way you have a thought, but okay. the thought itself wouldn't have to be any different. Okay. So it sounds like you're saying they are independent, if not entirely separate. Yes. Okay. 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 Do you have a response to that? Because yours seemed more like there was a, a dependence. Rather than just being so, I guess I was going more less like specific language, like English or Italian, and more with just like the language and your uh, like what words you can use to describe. So I guess I'm going more broad. Okay. Then language in general, as opposed to each specific language. Right. Okay. Oh, so if you did not have any language at all, is that what you're thinking, Max? Yeah, we could go there. So, like, if you don't have have a a language what would your thoughts be? That's How- a really interesting question that is way beyond my scope of knowledge. What I can say is, one, it's very hard to find a human that doesn't have language. They only happen because of a tragedy. Like, the only humans that don't have language are humans that grew up, literally grew up without humans around them, which is always mm-hmm. a tragedy. Um, They are all very different from each other all the different cases of quote-unquote they're called quote-unquote feral children um they happen for various reasons um the studies are inconclusive it's very hard to communicate with them because you don't have a language that you can communicate to them with um the other problem is they all of them tend to not live very long after Mm. they're found and we you know are they're living with humans now there's one of them that I don't remember the name of, but I'm sure you can look it up somewhere um, that never learned how to use a language was lived around humans long enough. They were trying to teach her how to speak and she never really learned how to speak. Um, it is not clear uh, for obvious reasons what she was thinking all the time because she couldn't express it. So it's unclear whether or not was she having as complex of thoughts as someone, as a quote-unquote normal person with language at her age would have been having, or was her th- were her thoughts somehow inhibited by the inability to use language? It's not clear because yeah, we couldn't we, ask her. We can't try that ourselves. Like, try to have a thought without using words in your head. Well, that <laughs> becomes a question. Can you have a thought that is not expressed in words. And yeah, actually, I, I think maybe you could. I 100% think you can, like, but I have, a, I have a horse in the race for that. Oh, okay. Um, I, I think you can, because you can think about an object without remembering what it's called. That's like, true, but are you just remembering qualities that you could describe in language? I don't know. I know, right, it's a very, very interesting question. Sometimes, no. I, maybe not not in the moment that you're thinking of all the qualities to describe it you're just you have the thought it's like that is, it's virtually present in your mind something that you saw or something okay. that you heard so you're claiming that you can have an image in your mind that is not tied to words yeah i okay. find this in music a lot actually sure. when i'm trying to write a song 
I do not have the skills to uh, the the knowledge of chords and chord progressions. Mm-hmm. I know what it's what I know what I would like it to sound like, but I don't know how to recreate it on an instrument. And yet, it's a thought in my head, and I have no way of expressing it. That's fair. That goes into an even deeper question of: is the, is it possible to express that thought in language? As a question in the void. Yes, right, because every chord you can play on a guitar can be expressed. Mm-hmm. So, in a certain sense, it's not that it's not that you're having a thought that's not tied to language. It's that you don't have the vocabulary to describe it, but it's still a thought that is linguistically describable, which is an interesting question itself. I would say, in a certain sense, I can think of something and not have a word for it which means that I can have a thought independent of my language, which is sort of what Max was talking about. Um, I can think of several neat words in several languages for concepts that my native language does not have a single word for. Um, The opposite of a virgin. There is no word that literally Mm. just means the exact opposite of a virgin in English. Um, There's no word necessarily for... um, Oh, what's a good one? Um, abstract nouns might be cheating a little bit because every abstract noun scopes a little bit differently. I'm trying to think of concrete. Um, oh, I can think of several neat Greek words, but I know how to explain what they mean in English. Um, da, 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 da. Hmm. Oh, I know a good one. Uh, hesychasm. Hesychasm is a word that is not from English, and I doubt the average English speaker, if I told them the word hesychasm, even if I explained exactly what it was, I bet they would go, I still do not know exactly what you're talking about. Um, but I can think about it. Is the reason I can think about it because I have language to express it. You've really piqued my, inter- my interest. I yeah. have no idea what you're talking about. In hesychasm? About. Yeah. My goal is to pique everyone's interest in hesychasm because <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, hesychasm is something that you find in the Eastern Christian traditions. Um, it is the primary form of meditation that Eastern Christian monks use. Um, hesychasm is Greek for silence. Um, the point of hesychasm is to free the mind from attachment to the world so much so that the mind can have direct experience of God unmediated through thought or language which is interesting wow yeah it is sometimes described as uh seeing the divine light so Hmm. to put it into western terms it would be the equivalent of experiencing the beatific vision okay in some limited way before death like while still living on earth that is the goal of hesychasm um but the whole premise of hesychasm is that you can have direct experience in your mind of something that cannot be expressed in words. Not just something you don't have vocabulary for, but the idea that you could have direct experience of the divine, of God, in an inexpressible way, in a way that no language Ever, it's beyond the scope of language, not just the scope of a language. Mm, yeah. um, and that whole claim would fall apart if humans cannot have a thought that is inexpressible in language, which would be interesting. 
Um, so in that sense, um, there are some traditions that certainly there are people who claim that um, thought can be so independent of language as to surpass the ability to even have a relationship to language. Um, not everyone thinks that, certainly. Um, uh, I would say most of the most of the scholastic West would not have accepted that for a long time. Um, whether or not they do now is a totally open question. Um, but the average scholastic Western theologian would have denied the ability to have direct experience of God in that way um, before dying. Um, or at least that it was um, possible to attain in a way that's um, seekable, worth, worth seeking to have. Um, the idea that you could have that would be, it would be a totally free gift and there's nothing you can do to even, like, make it easier to receive. The average, the average one. Aquinas would have disagreed. And this is a way in which Aquinas is not the, the one person whose views are everything scholasticism was. Um, because he would, he would agree, actually, that hesychasm was possible. Hmm. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. And so I would say in some places it seems like there are some... What I would be totally comfortable calling fringe cases, where thought can be so independent of language as to surpass even the ability to have a relationship to language. Average thought, I'm more skeptical about. And that's where I want to go with this. Does thought determine language, or does language determine thought? I think your answer is going to be no or well no is not one of the i think based on your previous definitions it sounds more like you would say that oh see now i don't know i don't want to put words into your head or words into your mouth um so i guess i'll just ask you do you think it's more accurate to say that language determines thought or that thought determines language or do you completely reject any of that language mm. whichever of you i don't care who answers first huh. I, I was under the assumption that you said language determines thought or thought determines language. Yeah, if we're gonna if, if you were given those two sentences and someone said pick one or both or neither and then we can discuss, you know, right. deeper. Yeah, I would say um thought determines language. Okay. What would your thoughts be, Max? It'd be kinda hard because uh once you start getting into language, you start getting into culture then. Sure. Right? And cultures inherently are going to have different ideas about different topics. Mm -hmm. So I think language, I think language can determine thought. But at the same time, there's definitely, I think, some things that thought can determine the way you think can be completely different from your... Uh, from your specific language, such as English or Italian, again. So, uh, I think there's instances that both could exist. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Do you have further thoughts? He All says right. maybe. He says maybe a mix of both. You fell strongly towards one. Thank you for the summary. I actually, I've been kind of spacing out this afternoon. Maybe it's. I'm tired Perfect. or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're good. Um, 
Yeah, I I don't think that language de- um, determines thought at all. I don't think so. Okay, I have a question then. Not that I disagree. You and your friend that you were talking about earlier had a discussion where you were defining terms. Why? Why were you defining terms? Why were you basing your thoughts on the? You have these English words. And somehow you want to frame your thoughts around shared understandings of these English words. Why not just establish agreement in thought and apply a random word afterwards? Oh, because we had to establish agreement in thought through language. Okay. We had to use language as a tool. Cool. Could you have done it without... Like, so if you're trying to define... We think there's a difference between belief and understanding and thought, maybe. Or belief, understanding, and truth. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that there are those three categories? Rather than come up with the arbitrary number of categories there are and then apply English words. To me, it sounds like you began with, we have three words, therefore we must have three categories. Uh, Now we just have to agree what those three categories really are. mm -hmm. But why are we describing three as our number of categories? Because we have three words. Yeah, okay. I'm just interested in your response. I'm not sure. Okay, good. That's the best response. Okay, thanks. <laughs> that was my best sophistical question was, ah, oh, but you began with these. Um, and this is where I'm going to say, I think that maybe determine might be an interesting word. You say that you think, or at least you have said previously now, that you say language does not determine thought. Would you agree to language influences thought? I was thinking no. Okay. I was I was really thinking that we have thoughts and we use the tool of language to express those thoughts. Sure. But that tool doesn't, you know, doesn't wag the dog. The tail doesn't wag the dog. The dog wags the tail. Sure. Kind of a thing. Yeah. Would you still agree to that? You said you were thinking it. Is that your way of thinking? I'm saying right now I am open to changing my opinion because okay. you are kind of, you, you're, you're not done with everything you have to say on it yet. That's fair. I'm just interested. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think it's an interesting question because I think what ends up happening is we work, our whole lives are, are lived through language, basically. Um, and I think it's interesting if you have to describe what you think about, um, food. So I was describing, um, oh, when we were eating goji berries earlier yeah, and we were eating them, we're trying to think, what does this taste like? Yeah. (laughs) That's not a thought. A question is not the same as a thought. If we want to say, uh, I'm thinking thought means you've, you've formed an image. You have an actual something in your brain that you can, you've, you've created a form in your brain. Questioning what the form is, is an approach to thought, but it isn't quite the thought yet. Right. And so while we're still trying to form our thought on what a goji berry eats, what it tastes like, not what it eats, (laughs) berries are not carnivores. Um, It was interesting to me because I originally, I mean, we started using language immediately. We just started naming things that were not goji berries to describe what we were experiencing. Well, I would say I was remembering experiences and, and, um, 
and then using language to describe you know i had the thought of the taste of a raisin sure but i didn't need the word raisin to have the thought i needed the word raisin to communicate that thought to you yes and i think that is an example of having of your la- of your thought determining language I'm interested in what your experience of when I said black tea was me saying those words and you hearing those words. Was that an instance of language clarifying what you were thinking Okay. or not? And I, I mean, that's my question is, would you have, would you have recognized that flavor as one of the distinct flavors without the words black tea in your head? Maybe yes, maybe not. I'm interested in your personal, I have another story where I can, okay, I have an example yeah, of myself. This is great. Yeah, so no, I did not pick up on that until it was mentioned to me, but what I meant by language being separate is that sure. you, you said black tea and I knew what you meant by that, but you could have used a different word if I knew a different word that still meant what black tea is certainly yes and so that's where... my mind immediately went to like yeah it has that like bitter tannins like black tea has yeah so i was thinking of the word tannins when you said black tea but sure but yeah yeah and if yeah. i had said tannins it would have helped solidify and then know? i would have been thinking about black tea yep it doesn't matter one, but yeah in a certain sense it doesn't matter which word i use that's already a that makes the association but it was the act of using a word Right. A word that has that associated because there's all kinds of words I can use to describe the flavor of black tea. Black tea just happens to be one of the most obvious ones because that's sort of the umbrella term. But I could have said tannins. I could have said tea. I could have said vegetal. I mean, I could have used a lot of words, Um, but I think it's interesting. There's a specific coffee that I really enjoy that I don't have any idea how to get a hold of now um, because the place that I got it from doesn't exist anymore. And sometimes when I'm tasting coffee, I get like, it tastes, quote, fruity. And that's as specific as I yeah. ever get. Because yeah. sometimes you're just, you don't make the associations to words. But there was one coffee that I was tasting one time. And it was just, there was some flavor that I could not pinpoint. It was like, um, it was like when you know there's a word for something. There's a perfect word to descri- to finish like your your thought. You're like expressing something and you're like, there's a word for this. And I can't think of it. Mm-hmm. And in a certain sense, I'm inhibited from really... Like, I have, a, I have a more vague idea of what I'm trying to say if I don't have a word for it, in a sense. So you're saying words do influence your thought because it helps solidify the I'm thought? I'm saying I think there is at least a way in which words can... And it, there's, was, this, there's this coffee, I'll, let, I'll, yeah, I'll get to you in two seconds. There's this coffee that has one of the flavors of it is the smell, smell and flavor being really similar. It's the smell of sycamore tree leaves in the fall that have been on the ground for about two days. Like it's so wildly specific. And because I had had an experience of it being like, I grew up with a sycamore tree in my backyard. So sycamore and all of its different smells throughout the year are very ingrained in my childhood. Um, The fact that I knew that smell so well, but I could not think of what it was. 
until finally I got the word sycamore. Somehow, and it took me about an hour. I was tasting this coffee for an hour before I got to that. And once I said it, once I had the word, not necessarily said it out loud, but once I had the word sycamore in my head, I could immediately parse the smell and categorize it and put it in my brain and say, that's what this smells like. Until I had that word, it there was something not cohesive about my thought about the coffee yeah there was an experience of thought that wasn't Mm -hmm. yet solidified and language actually helped change the way i thought about the coffee and so that's called the tip of the tongue syndrome yes that's one way of putting it (laughs) yeah Um, i thought okay my my counter to that was going to be that i would say you were frustrated that you weren't able to communicate it but that didn't change whether you had the thought or not but after what you just said i think you're right it can the words can help make the connection in your brain to other experiences that without the word there's no connection yeah and i think you just touched on something important it's in the brain i think i would argue your soul your intellect does not need language okay but the brain the mind that it's acting on the physical part of the brain language 100 percent is helping facilitate that i would agree with that whereas i think i would agree there are ways in which language thought is completely independent of language and i think that's where thoughts that are proper to the intellect and by proper i mean they happen in the intellect by power of the intellect solely by the power of the like the intellect does that without need of anything else um i would argue those yeah those clearly have to happen outside of language because language is a physical thing and if your soul is not physical then things that are proper to the soul also have to be non-physical therefore not language um this is this goes into Aquinas's idea of how do angels communicate to each other, and he says it can't be by language because language is a is a material thing. Right, and they um, have no material. They are yeah, they are strictly non-material. Material. Um, but I think when I did uh, coffee tasting classes, because I'm so cultured, uh, that I ran coffee tasting classes, which is something all you can only have coffee tasting classes in a first world country that is also fairly cushy even for a first world country i think um but we would do these classes and we would do the same thing we would all sit down with a coffee and we would start smelling it and tasting it and so we would brew it in our mugs we would taste it over and over and things like that and i was teaching them in a sense i was teaching them the approach how do you get into a coffee how do you enter into this strange world of people saying well, this coffee tastes like grapes. And you're like, no coffee tastes like grapes. (laughs) Fundamentally, it just does not. There are notes of grapes. There are reminders of grapes in coffee. No coffee just actually tastes like grapes unless you've messed up your coffee horribly. Um, But one of the best things I would do is I would taste something. I had always tasted the coffees beforehand. I was never tasting a coffee for the first time. But that didn't mean that I didn't learn more. You know, every time you taste a coffee, you can get more. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you do. It just depends. And I would sit there and I would say, okay, what is everyone getting? And I would just let them start saying words and just see what happens. And I would, some coffees, I would be like, I'm just really actually very interested because I got fruity And I'm still working on what I think it smells like and tastes like. And sometimes they would just get it. And I would go, yes. But sometimes I would have a very specific word in my mind. Because it's a unique thing. Something like olive. 
or beef or like one of those weird fruits. Or sometimes I think it's got a really distinctive goji fruity berries. Goji berry. I think it's got a really distinctive fruitiness of a specific fruit. And what I'm hearing them say is things like fruity. And I'd be like, what kind? Do we think it's more of a dried fruit or a fresh fruit? Like just trying to draw mm. it out. And sometimes those can be leading questions. And that's another way we can talk about leading questions as influencing thought. Um, but sometimes I would, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to say a word. And I want you all to just react. Kind of yes or no. And I would just look at them all and go pineapple and it would be interesting to see which of the people went yes and some people who went mm, i mm, maybe and some people would just be like no i no i don't i don't have, i'm not getting any pineapple which is valid i mean huh. a coffee does or does not have a note in it but your tongue and your nose might yeah, pick exactly, up yeah. differently and so some people would be 100% with me they'd be like yes pineapple and it was interesting because it's like the once you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. Once yeah. you hear it, once they heard the word pineapple, they could not untaste the pineapple. Yeah. And that's a way in which I think language influences thought. Once wow. I said pineapple, they could not taste it as not pineapple. They could get more specific, but they, in a sense, would have to fight against their own senses and their own associations to taste it as anything other than pineapple and you know more specific but to taste it as not pineapple was going to be very difficult um it's kind of the idea of pictures on the internet or something like that where it says once you see it you can't unsee it yeah same thing it's like same with like music we were talking earlier and like once you hear this this clap track then it's like you're never going to be able to not tell that it's a clap track Right, right. And, and yeah, to, to explain what, what you were talking about yeah. is, yeah, an album was recorded in a tiny venue with just a few audience members sitting in, like family members. And then they put on a massive audience clapping track to make it sound like a huge live recording. Yeah, and it wrecked it for me once I found out because then I knew. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I, before, if no one said anything, I would have never even questioned it. I it didn't, my attention wasn't drawn to. Is that a pre recorded clapping track or is that just an actual audience? Mm -hmm. And in a sense, it doesn't mean that if you had never heard the words clap track, it would still have the track. It would still have the clap track. It wouldn't be a change in reality, Mm -hmm. but it would be a change in your thoughts in the way that your mind is conforming itself to reality. Um, Something I just thought of, and I don't have it written down anywhere, is the idea of leading questions. Yeah. This is one of the really important things. Um, not Not to bring this into a really, really heavy subject. But what I immediately think of is the idea of um, if something traumatic may be happening to a child in their home. It's important. Part of what they're going to do. Obviously, you don't just wildly accuse people of doing things. But when uh, when the police come in, they don't ask the child questions like, does your father hit you? Like you don't ask that kind of a question because you are guiding that child's thoughts by doing that. You are getting, you are no longer getting an unbiased answer because you don't know what they're interpreting that question as meaning. Mm -hmm. Like, or 
um, if you, I mean, just things like that, you always ask, you just ask them very open and you try to use as vague of language as possible and you try to get them to speak and to get them to express the thoughts, to get them talking in their own words to describe what's going on. And the opposite of that is used all the time in a courtroom to get to get a um, confession out of someone, right? Uh, to get a confession or when to influence a, a jury. Yeah. Even if the person yeah. doesn't answer your questions, you are influencing the jury's thoughts by controlling which la- what language is being used in to describe what situations and in a sense if language is being used if you ask a very leading question even if the other lawyer objects and the question is thrown out the jury cannot yeah the jury cannot forget in a sense they can dismiss it as evidence but they will always reality will not change they were in a room where the where the defendant did not answer a very leading question. Yeah, so... Whatsoever that means. If someone were making accusations at one of you or something like that, if if I'm in a social situation and someone's making lots of accusations towards a person, they're scary things, I would be a little more cautious around that person than, Mm -hmm. than anyone else. And there's no reason to be because they were just... Is that a way of like a leading... Not really a question, but... Not necessarily, but that's that might be more something like a person's actions influencing. I mean, their action is language, but I don't know if it's the. F- it's not, it's not I don't know really if it's, the words. It's right? not the fact that they're using language in a sense. Which I mean, to be fair, a leading question is not just the fact that you're using language, but it is a way that the specific way that you are the specific way you are using language is done in a way that influences other people's thoughts. That one. I could see an argument of someone just saying it's not necessarily that they're using language in a specific way. It's that they're acting with a particular intent, whether that intent was within language or not, you would still have a similar reaction. Okay. Yeah. If someone's really aggressive, whether or not they're aggressive in language or aggressive with their body, I could see an argument to say you're reacting to aggression. It's mm-hmm. not important whether or not it was done with language or not. I don't know if I explained myself what, what I was, the situation I was thinking of. That well could enough. be. The lawyer in the courtroom yes. making those accusational leading questions of, you did this, didn't you? That's the stuff the jury can't unhear, even though sure. it was wildly yes. untrue. Yes. But but they know that someone thinks it, at least because he voiced it. Sure. I will say the jury also knows it's that lawyer's job to try and get the defendant to confess. Yeah. In one sense. Um, so I think that's a, that's a way where the lawyer has to be very careful are they going to alienate the jury by being wildly accusatory? Yeah. Or are they going to gain the jury's, at least the jury's sympathy by asking what seems to be a reasonable question that never gets answered? It depends how you word it. I can word wildly, I can word the same sentence in a wildly accusatory way, or I can make it sound like a very reasonable question. It's going to be received very differently, even if I'm asking for the exact same information. And so in a sense, that's I mean, that's emotional manipulation is what it is. So and manipulation being a neutral term in that instance, um, because I am I'm just I am controlling how I'm saying something and I'm controlling the emotional impact it's going to have. Whether or not that's one of the classes that lawyers take. I don't become a lawyer. I didn't take 
Yeah. I didn't yeah, take. I I've either. I've never been to law school. Yeah. I, I just know I, it probably is. Probably it's just called psychology, but. Uh, it could be. It could just be a rhetoric class. Yeah. I would put that under. I mean, that's one of the higher levels of rhetoric. Is. I mean, there's emotional manipulation, which yeah. always sounds like it's malicious. You can emotionally manipulate in a non-malicious way. It's possible. Mm-hmm. Like, um, if a child gets a boo-boo, and you're like, it's not really that bad. They're only cr- they're crying more because it was surprising than it actually hurts. Mm-hmm. You can speak to that child in a way that seems very concerned about the wound, quote unquote wound, which is really just a boo-boo, or you can totally dismiss it. You are, in a sense, emotionally manipulating by modeling whether or not that child should or should not care. And because children are very sponge-like, they're going to they're going to be influenced by that. Yeah. Now, you're doing it in a positive way because you're trying to model to the child whether or not this wound, in reality, should or should not be cared about that much. But yeah, that's teaching. Teaching is, in a sense, just positive... <laughs> Positive I, I love this manipulation. Positive manipulation, in a sense, is part of teaching, and it's um, and that sounds really bad, but I don't think it's I, I I think it's an unavoidable way to look at it. I had a discussion, and I I don't want to bog this down, but I had a discussion with someone who said they hated brainwashing, and I asked them to define their term. What do you mean by brainwashing? We got it down. Their idea of what brainwashing was generally what it ended up boiling down to was someone teaching people ideas that that person disagreed with because really i mean that's what brainwashing is now you can include malicious intent and things like that and i would i would include i don't think you can brainwash unmaliciously i think if you're teaching someone something wrong but you're not being malicious about it i don't think you're brainwashing them um i would reserve the term for malicious intent but basically they their their idea of what brainwashing was boiled down to what i would call teaching yeah <laughs> basically it's pres- and it was because they were talking about like you're only presenting part of the truth and i was like yes because you have to you can never express the full truth of something that's not mathematical you are always picking what to explain like when i'm teaching latin i have never taught anyone in the world everything about latin so really you're just imposing your beliefs mm-hmm. I am imposing. Person. Yeah, and I'm explaining things the way I understand them. And in the way and I'm trying to explain them in ways that I think will be the best way to view them, but I am controlling how those students view the dative case by telling them it works like this. You could describe the way the dative case works in about a hundred different ways. Mm-hmm. I'm giving them one. I am radically controlling. <laughs> their viewpoint of how something works because it's confusing and then as time goes on i loosen up and i say yeah remember how i said the dative means this uh, yes but it it's broader than that yes. yeah but and we move we on see that all the time and yeah because that's what teaching is you start Especially by introducing when it's a very something complex thing yeah and you're trying to lead them towards truth but you have to start the starting point of a journey is necessarily further away from the end than any other part on the journey because then it wouldn't be a journey right so the first thing you teach someone about it's like uh, when we teach small children that columbus discovered the americas that's not wrong it's just wildly not the whole story but that doesn't mean it's wrong 
It doesn't mean it's a lie to tell people Columbus discovered America. He did. And it's he's it just not mean the it's, only one or the first one. And it doesn't mean that it's um, acceptable. Well, I want to be careful with my words here, but for someone else to have a belief that Columbus did not discover the Americas. Yeah, I think that's wrong. Depending how you, I mean, if by discover they mean be the first person there. Yeah. Sure. That leads into my next question. No one talks like that. No one uses the word discover. Generally, the word discover in English generally is much looser than first person ever to see it. We are way, way, way looser with that word in general. It, sorry, I'm finding it funny we're bringing up Columbus again, which we've both agreed that we don't have a lot <laughs> of knowledge time. on. <laughs> That's super <laughs> the true. history of Columbus um, and the discovery of the new world. Yes. Um, <laughs> but when we use the word discover, like when I say something like, I discovered a new band. That's exactly I what I was thinking. 100% of. not the first person that knew about that band. Yeah. The band knew about them. Their producer knew. Like, but that would people. mean that we all have discovered the Americas. Yes. It does mean yes. that. Oh, wow. It does, in a way, because there is there is Can, a sense of the word discover that means to find out for the first time, regardless of how many wow. people have found out before you. And that is an actual sense of the word discover used in modern English. The question then becomes, is that an actual, should we use the word discover? Like, should the way we use words in English affect the way we think about concepts? Should I use the word discover to mean I find out the first time or the first time anything ever is known by any humans ever? Those are very, very different things. Is it okay that we use the same word for both? Or as philosophically minded people, ought we use different terms for different things every time? And then the question, the follow-up question to that is, if not, if it's okay to use some usage, how far? Because I can think of lots of words that have very, very, very broad uses. And does that mean that those are tied? Um, so it's a question. Like, when I first hear about a band, and when the first human ever stepped foot on the continents called the Americas now... Is it right to use the same word? And even if it's okay to use the same word or not, are those related concepts? Are those even related ideas? No, because you wouldn't get a holiday named after your discovery of a band. Sure, but neither <laughs> does the first person who ever stepped foot in the Americas. Yeah. There is no holiday commemorating that. But my question is, are those even related ideas? Clearly, they're not the same idea. Are they related at all? Big pregnant pause. Well, <laughs> no, it's I mean, it's a good, it's a thought. It's well, a yeah, real I question. see, I see a relationship. Okay, that there's like information that's learned. Okay, and that's then the fair. question is, has it been ever learned by anyone, or is it, or is it just you? Gotcha. So, yeah, and I mean, yeah, yeah. Like, so you're saying there is a relationship because they're both forms of acquisition of knowledge. Yeah, I'm assuming. That you're comfortable yeah, I, with that. I can. Yeah. Yeah. Do other languages have different words for those two things? I have no idea. Mm, I've yeah. never encountered a language where you could not use the same word for those two things. 
but my knowledge of languages is very, very small compared to the actual number of languages there are yeah, in the world. Yeah, I guess I was kind of just meaning Latin. Yeah, oh, no, Latin, you can use the same word for both um, very easily. You could use several words for both. Um, my favorite is invenio, which is also where we get the word invent from in English. Hmm. Yeah, great. It means, it means to find um, or to come upon. Oh, you know what's weird? I was just learning today in Italian, trovare is to find. Oh, and yeah. When you say that you're going to go visit with some friends, mm-hmm. you say that word. You say, I'm going to go find. Oh, you're going to mm. go find them? Yeah. That's interesting. Do you say, I'm going to find myself with them? Or do you say, I'm going to find them? I don't remember because I just Cause... learned it. But I think it was, um, it seemed like a just direct replacement of when we say, I'm going to go visit them. You say, I'm going to go trovare them. I'm okay. Go. Uh, visit uh, you know i'm gonna go find them gotcha i ask because in spanish when you meet someone for the first time um or if you're gonna go meet if you meet someone on the street say i'm walking down the street and i see someone and we meet the way you express that in spanish you say i found myself with them Hmm. so i was wondering if it was i found them or i found myself with them. i'm pretty sure it was i found them that's interesting that's actually i think more interesting to me yeah Yeah. i thought so when i was what you were saying uh, Mike sounds really Dante, Dante, you know. Oh yeah. Like he'll say like I found myself here, doing this. Yeah, and I wonder if that is because of classical English idiom, and every time you translate something from the 1300s, you try to sound more old than you are. Oh, I wonder. Or if he's following Middle Italian. Both are both are possibilities. In Latin, you can say I found myself with someone. Or I found myself at a place. You can carry yourself somewhere. That's a really common way of just saying go. Is to carry oneself somewhere. Um, All kinds of stuff. So I just wonder if Middle Italian follows that. Maybe Modern Italian has gotten rid of the reflexiveness of it. Which is possible. Language changes a lot. I like that phrase that I think I've heard in like a Three Dog Night song or something about. I found myself doing this activity. And I said self you know like yes <laughs> and i said self what are you doing you know that's fantastic there's a there's a prayer in the eastern orthodox church um where the the person praying it addresses himself as oh my soul come yeah and talks I've to themselves it's a beautiful beautiful set of prayers um anyway um yeah so i just lots of i don't want to go way too far in time um I have so many, I mean, there's so many things we can keep thinking about on this issue. I don't want to go super far. My sort of closing thoughts, however long they end up being, but the last sorts of questions I want to ask are things like, um, we're all in agreement, at least that language in some way at some times can influence thought. I think we all agree on that. Um, Is that good? Is that okay? Does that invalidate does that invalidate claims of precise knowledge? Because we all know language is radically imprecise. Like or we can or we can talk about it. I'm taking it as a given that we all think language is radically imprecise. Reality is way 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 more specific and our words always scope with a level of tolerance of you know either side. So when I say that that door is brown, I am not remotely describing exactly what color it is. I am giving you a category that that door happens to fall into, Mm. but the category is way broader. 
I can point to several things, call them all brown, and they're all different colors. And we're all okay with it. I can get more specific, but I often don't. In language, um, this is sort of an axiom of language, you tend to be as imprecise as possible all the time. Because precision requires more language. More precision requires more language, and we try to say things with as little effort as possible. And so, generally, if I'm trying to get my point across, I will be as imprecise as I can be without breaking understanding. So, like, um, if I walk up to someone who's reading a book and I say, how is it? It can literally refer to any inanimate object in the universe. They know it means the book because mm. they're holding the book. Therefore, I can be imprecise. If they were holding two things, a book and a beer, I would have to I would have to name which one I mean. <laughs> a book and a beer, you just described my Saturday nights. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I wouldn't have to say, how is the logger? That would be- not refer to the book. It wouldn't refer to the book, but it's also way more precise than I have to be. And I probably wouldn't say it. I would say, how's the beer? Yeah. Now, if they were holding two beers, then I now I can't just say, how's the beer? I have to be more specific. And so we tend to use the level of specificity that we need. We right. tend to be as, as imprecise as possible, but as specific as necessary. Yeah, and I think when you try to get more specific than necessary, it tends to bore people. And it comes when across they, as weird. Yeah, when they already figure out what it is that you're asking them in that kind of situation, the more detail you give them, the more frustrated they're going to get because they already they already got it. They already figured yes. out what you're asking, so you need to stop and listen to their response. Yeah, and when you use more specific language, so I you again because you use specific language when there may be a when there may be a um, to use anything less specific would would cause like misunderstanding. When you use language that's more specific than necessary, people feel talked down to. Yeah, yeah. Because you're assuming, yeah. well, if I weren't really specific, you probably wouldn't understand what I was talking about. Like, I know what I'm talking about. That was but the like, frustration yeah. I was referring to. That's yeah. exactly right. It can it can come across as very pedantic if someone's more specific than they have to be. Um, and the problem can come with arguing sometimes. Um, I've had this problem sometimes where um, if someone's arguing something philosophically, I know... A lot of philosophical technical jargon I can speak with philosophical technical jargon to an okay degree if I want to get really specific or if I want to argue something I tend to think let's be as specific as we can be which doesn't always work because then people feel talked down to it kind of sounds like you're using big words to sound smart to, to impose I control this I control this conversation because I'm smarter than you Whereas sometimes I'm really just like, no, no, no. Here's words that I know that really like, I know I've had this thought before using these words, categorizing it this way helps immediately clear something up. Sometimes it just comes across as pedantic because they haven't had that thought in those terms. And so me suddenly jumping into technical jargon sounds like I'm trying to steamroll their ideas. I think you're doing that right now, Mike, to me. I, I don't know what pedantic means. <laughs> oh, pedantic. <laughs> pedantic means um, inappropriately teacherly. Okay. Mm. Coming from the Greek word uh, paideo, meaning to teach. Okay. Um, literally means to childize someone, to treat someone as a child. 
in Greek means to teach because that's what you that is the action that is most associated with the most properly associated with children is teaching. So that's pedantic is now my most favorite vocab word of the day in a very long time. Very good. That was good. A, that was an awesome. I do like the word pedantic. Etymology on it. Um, there are two words in Greek that come from that are just verbs based on the noun child. One is paidewo to educate, and one is paidzo to tease, <laughs> which is very fun. Paidzo can mean to play with, to tease, or to flirt, mm. and it's a very fun word, and it gets used really well. And there comes, I guess, my last question: Are those three things related? Are teasing and flirting and playing with someone? And by playing, I literally mean like playing games, like throwing balls. Is it okay that we have that the Greeks had one word for that and regularly talked about how they're the same thing? Partly because they had one word for it. I knee jerk reaction. I think that's okay. I think flirting is teasing because okay. it's it's um you know like showing them. Showing affection without any meaning for follow through. You know, so you, you are teasing someone. You're toying with their emotions. Okay. You're playing with them. <laughs> toying with their right. emotions. <laughs> so, like, imagine if... Um, well, here's a fun fact. Flirting is never serious. We wouldn't say flirting is serious. Sure. I was just going to ask, um, if I made fun of you later for dropping your mic on the floor, if I teased you for that, would that be flirting? Oh, and that's where it gets weird. <laughs> that's my question. In the in the Greek? Well, it's the same word. Yeah. Because it's one word, is it one concept? And or and even if it's not always the same concept, is it okay to like would you in if I teased you for dropping a microphone on the floor, would you ever construe that as me flirting with you? No. Why? But I guess we have that one word discovery even though we have an understanding of it in two very different ways. Sure. In ancient Greece, yeah, it'd be flirty. A little bit. Maybe. That's the question. If there's one word for something, does it necessarily always contain all senses in every situ- in every use? If I paizo someone in ancient Greece, am I always being a little flirty? Am I always being a little playful? And Are you am saying I always is it always being, being interpreted as that? Well... In a sense, yeah. Okay. Like, is that our or? In a sense, is if I if I tease someone in ancient Greece, am I necessarily flirting with them because their language does not have a separate word? Maybe their ancient... idea of flirting is broader. That than could our be. Idea. I would argue that it is yeah. actually. Um, so that yeah, that's a good point. Their interpretation of it would be changed. Does that mean that? people who speak different native languages do not view reality the same way in a problematic way in a way that like say someone speaks um oh, what's a language that's wildly different than english um I, we'll do like uh hausa hausa is an african language would someone who grew up speaking English and someone who grew up speaking Hausa ever be able to communicate with each other in a meaningful way if they do not have words that correspond to things? So, or I can pick another language. Um, there is a language in Africa that I don't remember the name of that only has three verbs. Do, go, come. That's it. There are no other verbs. You cannot run in that language. 
You have to go on a run. Run is always a noun. Hmm. Would we have actual philosophical problems trying to communicate ideas because the syntax of the language is so different mm-hmm. right no i mean you would have to learn the syntax okay so i always have to so if i'm going to communicate with someone you would argue we have to be using the same language i mean i suppose yeah in some sense on a practical level you have to because otherwise how would you understand but in a sense like would we have to agree which one to use do I have to use, like, are they going to be th- be able to think in English? That's a wild, is it a wild leap in concept to go from going on a run to running? To think of something as always a noun or always a verb? It's an open, I think it's an open question. Yeah, it's it's open. Um, I, it doesn't seem like that big of a leap to me. I, I would okay. say it would take more effort for them to learn the English lang- English language than someone else, some other language would. That's, yeah, that's demonstrably true yeah so or here's another uh maybe even a better question of um oh okay there are languages that do not differentiate tense in their verbs does that mean that their experience of time is fundamentally different hmm hmm yeah, and I've been thinking about that one recently because in Italian, they have a different way of talking about the past mm-hmm. than in English. Yep, they split the past up differently than we yeah, do. Yeah, into like recent past and mm-hmm. uh, remote past. And we do kind of. Yeah, yeah. We have we do ways kind of doing of. it, but we do it differently. Yeah. We split so. the past. There are some languages that have eight different past tenses for different levels of remoteness. Something that happened just just happened. Something that happened earlier today. Something that happened about one day ago. Something that happened a few days ago. Something that happened about a week ago. Something that happened about one cycle of the moon ago. Something that happened about a year ago. And something that happened way further back. That's awesome. It's fantastic. It would take more to learn. But then it's harder it would to learn be than English, easier to talk about sense. things. It's it's more specific to talk yeah, about things. Yeah. Imagine not knowing when something happened. And then having to describe it as having happened at some time. Oh, that makes it hard. Well, you have to pick one. Yeah. Now, obviously, they're going to have words for around this time. or I mean, They're going to have ways of dealing yeah. with that. But it does require you to do more. Yeah. Then well, we do in that English, too. you can just say, it happened sometime. Oh, so easy. oh, there's no way to do that in the other language. No, you must pick, did it happen just now, okay. this day, a week. Like, you have to so pick one saying, of those. There is no general. Where I say, a couple of weeks ago, and then I think about it, I was like, no, it's really more like over a month. Sure. You know? So yeah. I used the wrong one. Yeah. But I didn't have to use anything. Correct. In their language, you must always pick. There are some languages where you have to always indicate on every single verb how you found out this knowledge. Whether it's by, whether you actually saw it happen with your own eyes, whether you heard about it from someone whether you heard it happen, whether or not the person you found out from was is a trustworthy source, whether you just used indirect, like there are some languages, it's called, um, there's a word for it uh, that I can't think of right now, but I'll think of it here in a second, um, where you have to specify that on every single verb, how you found out this knowledge. Wow. Yeah. Um, and the fact that I can't think of what it's called is really annoying me. Um, 
that's too bad. I'll think about it right after we click stop recording. Just yeah. Evidentiality. It's called evidentiality. Oh, evidence. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, most languages don't distinguish between more than two or three of them, but some languages can have eight different evidentiality markers for eight different ways of coming mm-hmm. to knowledge. You must specify on every single verb how you came to it. We can use evidentiality in English, but it's not marked on the verb. I can say something like the doorbell rings and I say, oh, that must be Eric. What I'm expressing is I don't, I didn't see that it's Eric, but something has happened that has caused me to believe that Eric is standing outside the door. I've sort of hedged my bets. Um, some languages yeah, wow. you do that with every single verb. That's interesting. That must be Eric. Is that the same use of the word must when you command someone? You must do this? Yes. It's technically an expansion of that use. Okay. As in uh, logically, necess- logically necessary. Okay. It's a shortening of the sense of... Basically, it's a shortening of the syllogism. Eric... Eric is going to be ringing the doorbell. The doorbell has just rung. Therefore, it must be Eric who has just rung the doorbell. Like, that's what you're basically saying. Yeah. Except no one would ever say all of those sentences without being (laughs) pedantic. Um, Because if I ever expressed it that, if I ever expressed it with that much specificity, everyone in the room would be like, we know how thinking works. Oh my gosh. (laughs) But here at the shed. Open the door. (laughs) Here at the shed, though, I would kind of appreciate the spelling out of the logic i sure because it would be banter it would yeah. be friendly now and that's another thing pedantry can be teasing and Mike. if it's teasing it's teasing is always uh teasing in the greek sense of paizo almost always refers to something well received i'd appreciate it if you just stop flirting with me right now <laughs> <laughs> You sound like me in my Greek class. Shout out to my Greek teacher. We would talk. We would do stuff all the time because the word to teach means to flirt or to tease. Kind of. They're related. Paideo, paizo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They both mean to treat as a child, which is wildly interesting if you think of flirting means to treat someone the way you would treat a child. And if you think I about really it, I didn't think about sense. it that way before. Yeah. Right. Well, think about um, if you have a boyfriend or girlfriend... You know, someone calls them baby. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that a wildly horrifying thing to call someone <laughs> that you consider a love I know interest? some people that have a big problem with that kind of language. I know, it's interesting. Yeah. And, I, and that leads to the, you know, that's one of the questions of, well, if you call them a baby, does that mean that you think of them as a baby in certain in certain ways, do you in actually consider them? An, and is the way you treat them related to the way you actually treat infants? Is there crossover there? I, I would answer, generally speaking, in that situation, no. I don't no, think the average that, person. You're using that word in a different way. You're using it in an endearing way. Yeah. You're using and not it in a, an actual way. Yeah. But then, why? Why do we Why that, that word? Yeah. Why baby? Like, it's just so weird. Yeah. Or like um, when a grandma says, oh, you're so cute, I could just eat you up. Whoa, what a wildly <laughs> threatening back, thing to back. say. You no, don't know no. me like that. Yeah, like what in the world? <laughs> Sometimes language is so wild um, and different. And this is why my sort of concluding thought is something like language 100% can influence thought. Thought 100% can just determine language. You can think in terms separate from language 
and then shape language to express what you're saying. Um, sometimes language and thought don't match up at all. When someone says, I could eat you up, they do not mean at all in any way, shape, or form actual cannibalism. They're expressing something. They're expressing an idea that is 100% devoid of the meaning of those words. It was an idiom. Yeah, an idiom. Something where the semantics and the pragmatics do not line up. Yeah. Um, different things like that. I do think it's possible to have language determine thought, but I think that's almost always problematic. I think that's where you get into things like over-etymologizing words. Say someone's reading an ancient text, or say someone's speaking English, and someone uses a big fancy word that has Greek roots or whatever, and someone goes... Um, actually, that word comes from the Greek word, meaning to set forests on fire. And I would appreciate it if you didn't advocate destruction of the ecosystem. And they're like, the word means that I disagree with you. And they're like, um, I feel threatened by your violence. Um, that word does not actually mean to disagree. If you knew the Greek roots, you would know that it means to set trees on fire or something. Like, that's someone who is claiming that language determines thought. Yeah. In a problematic way. Because yeah. what they're doing yeah. is now they are not allowing communication to happen. They are pedantically insisting that language determines thought in an unhelpful way. Yeah. Um, he is not pushing up daisies. <clears throat> he is dead. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. The insistence that the use of a word, that a word's meaning can never change. For all of history, a word has a set meaning that it always means is just silly because yeah. it's just not true. Yeah. And to insist upon it is to enslave your thoughts to words in an inappropriate way. Hmm. So, yeah. Well, there you have it. This is one of our open-ended ones that has an open-ended ending to it, too. How long have we been running? Too long. We, we said we want to do 30-minute episodes if we can, but this is... Wow, yeah, this one's not even close to that. That's uh, okay. I'll edit it way down. Or not do. Really, Just have no, a three-hour episode. I won't, because I can't cut things out. Yeah, all of, all of this was very, very, like... Yeah, this hey, was we one did, long discussion. We did a better job of staying on topic than usually. So. That's true. We did talk about one topic for the entire time. That's great. We can hang our hat on that. <laughs> All right. You can email us at deepthoughtsontherocks at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.